bum bum bottom 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 bum
one of my favorite comic book moms is Aunt May yeah. from the Spider-Man franchise, right? And like every version of Aunt May, I like that version. I like the classic old lady Aunt May. I like the ultimate universe. I even like every single movie version of Aunt May. That's just a character that I respond to and feels like, I don't know, I like, uh, she's one of the most warm characters in comic books. Aunt May is a beautiful character. I also think that Ma Kent mm. is a beautiful kind of um, another adoptive mom mm. where she just sees a kid in need and she goes like, well, I'm going to step up to this. Mm -hmm. Another great comic book mom is, of course, Alana from yeah. Saga. Mm -hmm. She goes into motherhood like, this is what I want and I'm going to do what I need to do to have this for myself and for my partner. And she is okay with making foibles and, and she's at peace with like, sometimes I'm just gonna go off the handle. I'm just doing the best that I can under these extremely oppressive and stressful circumstances. Of the moms we've mentioned, she feels the most modern and torn from the cliches of motherhood. You know, because certainly like Sue and even Debbie and um, uh, uh, Aunt May, uh, when you go back and you look at their history, they, you know, they fall into a lot of cliche concepts of of what a mom is. And housewives. Al yeah, housewives. And Alana is not uh, a housewife. She's not the domestic spouse. Not that there's anything wrong with that at all. It's just Alana feels like another step away from Aunt May, Sue, and Ma Kent. And it takes a lot of different types of moms to raise humanity, yes, right? Yes, yes. And bringing it back to Sue, this idea of being there for everyone, not just your blood relatives, is very attractive. And that's what I like about the Fantastic Four is that they uh, become a blood family, but they're also a found family, and they keep bringing in other folks into their clan, we're not going to see that necessarily in these first six issues. Yeah, and talk about it in this episode, but maybe a little. But we do see that impetus in her to take care of others before herself. Um, and there are times that she struggles with it. And there are definitely times where she does feel unappreciated. Like she needs a day, like Mother's Day, where, you know, Ben Grimm and her <laughs> brother Johnny and Reed look at her and go like, thank you, we see what you do. You may be invisible part of the time, <laughs> but your efforts are not. Oh man, uh, so true. I'm just, again, Reiterating, very excited to be covering the Fantastic Four on Comic Book Couples Counseling. We've wanted to cover them for a long time since the start of this podcast two years ago. Literally, when we went on our walk around Virginia, the suburbs of Virginia, and started talking about we want to do a project together about comic books. Comic Book Couples Counseling, the title came up. Sure. And the concept of pairing a self-help book and a comic book couple came up. And I was like, on that initial walk, I was like, I know what we should do. The Fantastic Four and The Four Tendencies. 
And now it comes to pass. Yeah, it just took uh, two and a half years because <laughs> I didn't want to rush into Sue and Reed. This, for the same reason we didn't want to rush into Norrin and Don. Like those are one of your favorite couples. Sue and Reed are one of my favorite couples. And I, I just wanted to make sure we were ready to tackle them. What was your experience with this superhero team, Marvel's first family, before doing this episode? I have read very few Fantastic Four dedicated comics. They tend to pop up in the Marvel yes. world. But for me, they've always just kind of been in the background until you introduced me to FF. The uh, Fraction and Allred uh, spinoff title. And I found it to be super fun. But no Reed and Sue in that book. Yeah, it's all about their legacy and their spirit and the future foundation and creating this school. And kissing She-Hulk and Wonder Man. Of course. And I've seen the Fantastic, I've seen some of the Fantastic Four movies, all of which are panned generally. Uh, one of our Patreon episodes is a, a comically real with the 2005 Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. Yep. And I actually liked it a lot. I yep. thought it was really charming. It's good. I liked it. I thought that I liked the relationship familial aspect to that story. And listeners, uh, we made that a free Patreon episode. It's our first Patreon episode. So you, I'll include a link. If you want to hear our thoughts on the Rise of Silver Surfer, you can go and listen to it right now. But spoiler alert. Had a great time. Um, and I did see the 2015 Fantastic Four in the yeah. theater. And it was so bad. Yeah. It was so not to, I don't know. It Like, I left feeling embarrassed and weird. It's, a, it's not a good movie. It's uh, a very, very bad movie. In a way that felt really yucky. Yeah, yeah. Because you can sense all the um, studio interference and the re-editing. I like I was watching somebody's worst day at work. Yeah, that's a great review. That should have been the review of the of the film. Yeah, absolutely. I too did not grow up with the Fantastic Four, and I would say that I actually actively avoided them when I was a kid. I thought that they looked boring, and so I never partook in their comics. And it wasn't until much later when Mark Wade came on and did a run with Mike Rirango. I can never say Mr. Rirango's name properly. Uh, that that I started to find it a little bit interesting because that comic got so many raves. I tested it out. I was like, oh, this is pretty good. I've now gone back and reread that run. That run is fantastic. But Jonathan Hickman, uh, as he is uh, wont to do with me, showed me what is great about the Fantastic Four with his run and the creation of the Future Foundation, which you found so attractive in the FF comics from Fraction and Allred, and that big found family and the pursuit of education and science. There's something very Star Trek-y about the Fantastic Four that I now respond positively towards. And it's been a blast going back recently and reading these early issues and watching the Fantastic Four form into something that I respond very much to today. I relate to you saying initially that they look boring because they do. Who cares about four rich white people yeah. unless they're Batman. <laughs> but it just looks like, like, especially when you're a young comic book reader, 
Reed and Sue are very much grown-ups. Yeah. And Johnny, especially in his original iteration, he's supposed to be a teenager. Yeah, a teenager. hyphen-ager. <laughs> but he still looks like a grown-up. <laughs> and so who, who cares? But I would like to go back in time and encourage my younger self to crack these pages open. Because once you do, you see how radical they are in concept. And... The Fantastic Four, these these first issues in particular, do serve as the Bible for what the Marvel Comics universe becomes. Kirby and Lee are, you can see them planting seeds. We get Doctor Doom. We get the scrolls. We get the Mole Man. And we get to see them right after these issues put back into circulation. Reed Richards is like, tut tut, don't do it again. I'm trusting you to change your ways. Goodbye. They are, you know, like they, they plant those seeds, but those seeds, they're, they're, they're constantly cultivating. You know, the, the, what you see of the scrolls initially, what you see of Dr. Doom uh, initially, of the Fantastic Four initially, are not what we eventually get. It's very much a process of creation. And we get to see them go like, we also want familial drama. There is so much tension in between Ben and Johnny. A lot of fighting going on. And we see this urge between Sue and Reed really wanting to keep this unit together. And it is a constant struggle. From the beginning, we see the signature Marvel balance of, yeah, we got to fight the villain and save the world, but also we've got some pet peeves at home that also need taking care of. Yeah, but even that juxtaposition takes a little time to evolve. Clearly, Kirby and Lee found that struggle between the superhero life and the family life interesting, but that struggle is not really there in the first issue. And so reading these six issues, for me, what was exciting was seeing Kirby and Lee develop their understanding of the Fantastic Four. It didn't come out of their heads fully formed. You know, cause like the Fantastic Four number one was first published like nearly 60 years ago in August of 1961. And there is a lot of legend and mythology swirling around its creation. We've already discussed it quite a bit on this podcast. Thanks to some incredibly insightful interviews with comics artist, Tom Scioli discussing his Jack Kirby graphic novel and Abraham Reisman chatting up his Stan Lee bio, True Believer. If you want to hear those shows, please check the show notes. We've got a link for you to click on. But you might want to clock how we always make a point of saying Kirby's name before Lee. Uh, That's true. Uh, (laughs) But on this week's episode, we will not be getting into the creation story. Who deserves more credit, Jack or Stan? We've discussed that enough. The basic gist is that in 1961, Timely Comics publisher Martin Goodman wanted a comic to compete against National Comics' Justice League of America and the Fantastic Four was Kirby and Lee's answer. That was always Martin's strat. If war comics were hot, war comics they made. Western, horror, romance, whatever. If it was selling, Martin wanted in on it. The moment it wasn't, boom, he wanted no more. The Fantastic Four hit stands in August of 1961 with a cover date of November 1961. It was an immediate smash, and from its bones, the Marvel Comics universe was constructed. I think one of the other aspects of the Fantastic Four that you have to talk about is the space race. You know, four years earlier, in 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, the first satellite into space. By April of 1961, just four months before the publication of Fantastic Four number one, 
cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space. So when you're reading FF number one, that's why Reed is so damn eager to get his team up to the stars. Freedom was at stake. The Ruskies were going to own space if America didn't get its act together. Alan Shepard Jr. was the first American in space, launched up there in the Freedom 7 capsule in May of 1961, a month later. That same month, John F. Kennedy enacted the Apollo program with the sole goal of putting an American on the moon by the end of the decade. The USA would achieve that mission on July 20th, 1969, when Neil Armstrong took that one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. The spirit of cosmic adventure, fueled by politics, raged throughout the 1960s and serves as the backbone for the Fantastic Four. It's critical to understand Reed's burning desire to get up into space and into those dastardly cosmic rays. To help us get into that mindset, Lisa, I'd actually like to play JFK's famous New Frontier speech, the one he gave when he accepted the Democratic nomination for president in 1960 on July 15th, just over a year before the publication of FF1. Yeah, let's do it. The new frontier is here, whether we seek it or not. Beyond that frontier are uncharted areas of science and space, unsolved problems of peace and war, unconquered province of ignorance and prejudice, unanswered questions of poverty and surplus. It would be easier to shrink from that new frontier, to look to the safe mediocrity of the past, to be loved by good intentions and high rhetoric. But I believe that the times require imagination and courage and perseverance. I'm asking each of you to be pioneers towards that new frontier. My call is to the young in heart, regardless of age, to the stout in spirit, regardless of party, to all who respond to the scriptural call, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be dismayed. I love that speech. I love imagining how my parents heard it, how Jack Kirby heard it, how Stan Lee heard it, how Gene Roddenberry heard it. We got to get out there. The West must be one. Uh, for Reed Richards and the Family Fantastic, it's their duty to put their bodies into orbit. The nation is counting on them, and everything that comes after those cosmic rays is tackled with that same passion and enthusiasm for adventure and American purpose. But, Lisa, before we can get into the rest of that raw, 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 we gotta talk about this month's love expert, Gretchen Rubin, How's she going to help out Mr. and Mrs. FF? The 60s were certainly a time bursting with expectation. So we're going to observe how Sue and Reed respond to both inner and outer expectations using Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies as they're laid out in her 2017 book, The Four Tendencies, The Indispensable Personality Profiles That Reveal How to Make Your Life Better, parentheses, and other people's lives better too, close parentheses. <laughs> you know how I love a full title. You gotta get it all in there, Lisa. I understand. Those of you who have been merrily marching along with us here at CBCC are already familiar. She was our love expert for Vision and Virginia back on episode 59, where we used a chapter from her 2009 book, 
the happiness project. That was just to amuse your boosh <laughs> because now we're going to really dig into her revolutionary, to me, concept, the four tendencies. The four tendencies idea actually arose in her 2015 book, Better Than Before, which is all about creating and maintaining new healthier habits. The idea occurred to her when she was out with a friend and the friend mentioned that they would like to get back into running, but they haven't been able to maintain a good running routine since being on the track team in high school. Gretchen began to wonder, why could her friend never miss a track meeting in high school, but not have the same discipline on her own? Gretchen has a strong online following, so she used the community she built to run surveys asking questions about people's habits, and she found that people tended to fall into four categories, which became the four tendencies, upholders, obligers, questioners, and rebels. These four categories describe how an individual might tend to respond to expectations, both inner, the expectations we make for ourselves, and the outer, the expectations others have for us. Upholders are people who are good at meeting inner and outer expectations. Obligers are people who are poor at meeting inner expectations, but are good at meeting outer expectations. Questioners are good at meeting inner expectations, but are poor at meeting outer expectations. And rebels are poor at meeting inner and outer expectations. A good way to differentiate the four tendencies is to consider how each category feels about New Year's resolutions. Mm. Upholders love New Year's <laughs> resolutions. They have examples of resolutions that have worked for them in the past, and they look at New Year's as an opportunity for a fresh start on a new habit. Obligers have mixed feelings about New Year's resolutions. They have lots of examples of failed resolutions from the past, particularly ones they have made with and only for themselves. The times they have made positive habit changes is when they've done so with others, like seeking out an expert or a peer. Questioners like to make resolutions, especially ones they have researched and thought a lot about, but they don't feel the need to make them on New Year's Day because that just seems arbitrary. Like, mm -hmm. why, why do we have to do it on January 1st? Rebels hate New Year's resolutions mm -hmm. and they hardly ever make them. Interesting. Once she had her four categories well-defined, she ran a survey of a nationally representative sample, a geographically dispersed group of US adults with a mix of gender, age, and household income don't want to cause any normal bar flashbacks, <laughs> and found that of those surveyed, 41% tended to be obligers, 24% were questioners, 17% were rebels, and 19% were upholders. In the introduction of the four tendencies, Gretchen submits that our tendencies are somehow hardwired because they don't correlate to birth order, parenting style, religious upbringing, gender, introversion, extroversion, and tend to stay consistent without some kind of, quote, catastrophic character reshaping experience, such as a near-death experience, a grave illness, or a serious bout with addiction. I have a hard time believing any part of our personality mm, is hardwired. So until they discover the upholder gene, I'm going to continue <laughs> to be skeptical about that. Okay. But it does underscore the idea that can, that it can be a little futile to try to change your tendency. We are all capable of meeting expectations in a matter 
befitting our tendency. And when all things are equal, or we're just exhausted or not thinking, we're all going to do what we tend to do most of the Mm. time. So what is the benefit of knowing our own tendency? Regardless of your tendency, there are times when we have to meet both outer and inner expectations. In each chapter of The Four Tendencies, Gretchen gives strategies of how to motivate each tendency to tackle these expectations. Each tendency, yes, even upholders, have strengths and weaknesses that can be easily navigated if you're fully aware of them. But what is the benefit of knowing your partner's tendency? (laughs) For the sake of this podcast, we'll be talking mostly about romantic partners, but it can also apply to family members, friends, and teammates, coworkers. I think that when you're in a romantic relationship, part of your job is to support that person to become the person they really want to become. And by knowing their tendency, you can know what best motivates them. Each chapter has strategies of, quote, dealing, her word, not mine, with a person of a given tendency and how you can best support them or motivate them to support you. It reminds me of the five love languages, the self-help book that we refer to the most on this podcast where we started with about how if you can figure out what your partner's love language is, you can... I'm going to use the word weaponize, <laughs> uh, but you, you, you can weaponize that to help you in communication and, we, and, and also em- empathy. We all have ends yeah. we want to see come about. And if we have a great tool to manipulate that outcome, yeah. why not use it? <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have to be for evil. It can be for good. Sure. So I've convinced you, you Uh all want to know your tendency. So how are you going to figure that out? Having heard them described, you may have a good feeling which tendency you are. But if you need a little more convincing, you can either go to the Four Tendencies book, which contains a written version of the test following the introduction, or you can go to GretchenRubin.com. I'll include a link in the show notes. Or you could just give it a goog. It's real easy to find. Brad and I both took the online quiz which you can listen to as a Patreon episode entitled The Friendly Neighborhood, The Fantastic Four Tendencies, patreon.com slash CBCC podcast. I'll have a link (laughs) in the show notes for that as well, Lisa. I got Obliger and Brad got Rebel. Big time. Which means I prioritize other people's expectations over my own and Brad resists having any expectations put on him at all. Yeah. If you think you know your tendency... Or you take the quiz, let us know at CBCC Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Use the hashtag, the Fantastic Four Tendencies. Ooh, we have a hashtag. Isn't that fun? It is. Gretchen stresses that you should not put any kind of value judgment on any of the tendencies, which is easy for her to say because she is an upholder, and that is clearly <laughs> the best tendency. But we'll get more into that in the upcoming episodes. On this episode, I'd like to start making headway on what Sue and Reed's tendencies may be, and I think it will be hard to resist talking about Ben and Johnny's tendencies as well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But before we can do that, Lisa, we got to get to some words of affirmation. Na 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 na
Congratulations! So, for first-time listeners, I think we should explain what the heck is this portion of the show, the words of affirmation. The words of affirmation are a way that we give back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. These are affirmations that I collect and curate and use in my own daily life. This week, they're adapted from Gretchen Rubin's book, Better Than Before, where she has two lists to live by, her secrets of adulthood and her paradoxes of happiness. Yeah, so this podcast happens because of our patrons. We've updated software. We've updated equipment. We've commissioned art for this show, thanks to them. So, yeah, words of affirmation, we're giving back. We have lots of new patrons this week. So let's foster that spirit of gratitude and get into a more mindful state. Taking a breath. Jason, you see that we are more like other people and less like other people than we suppose. Spencer, you delight in the flaws because flawed can be more perfect than perfection. Katie McGuire. You know that when you, the student, are ready, the teacher will appear. Will from 100% Comics. You think about yourself so you can forget about yourself. Jason from Junk Comics. You know to always keep an empty shelf and a junk drawer. Those are really good affirmations. I like those, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, Gretchen. And the nice thing about them is that even if we didn't dedicate those affirmations to you, you can take them and use them for yourself and uh, put them up on your mirror like Lisa does and look at them every morning. Absolutely. Now let's get into the main discussion. Face front, true believers. It's time for the Fantastic Four. For our FF Cosmic Kickoff, we'll be covering the first six issues of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. These issues are penciled and plotted by Jack Kirby, written by Stan Lee, inked by George Klein, Christopher Rule, Saul Brodsky, Joe Sinet, and Dick Ayers. The comics are colored by Stan Goldberg and lettered by Artie Simic and Joe Duffy. Here's the plot synopsis taken off the back of the Marvel Masterworks trade paperback. In 1961, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby lit the fuse on the greatest revolution in comic book history, the Marvel Age of Comics. And right here in the pages of the Fantastic Four, you can experience it from page one with the space race Reed Richards, Ben Grimm, Sue Storm, and Johnny Storm shoot for the stars. But after their craft is bombarded by cosmic rays, they return to Earth with the startling powers of the Fantastic Four. These weren't just any superheroes, though. They were a realistic, relatable, bickering, and lovable family that couldn't float their rent and didn't always enjoy their superpowers. So come join the Marvel Masterworks and witness the first appearance of such Marvel U cornerstones as the Scroll and Doctor Doom, the Submariner's Return, the debut of the Mole Man, and his many, many monsters. Also, the Miracle Man, and more. Spoilers! They can't pay their rent? They can't pay their rent, Lisa. I did not know that, because they do seem to be spending a lot of money refurbishing and completely rebuilding somebody else's building. You gotta keep reading, Lisa, because issue number nine, where they can't pay the rent, feels like this watershed moment for what Fantastic Four is going to eventually become, where Kirby and Lee decide that it's all about the juxtaposition between being a superhero and a human being, being a father, being a husband, being a friend. Issue nine is such a huge issue, and we're not gonna talk about it. I wish we had the time to cover 
the first 10 issues or the first 50 issues, but we're about to go into session with Reed and Sue, and there is a lot to talk about in just these first six. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that our session with Sue and Reed can begin with the cover of Fantastic Four number one. Jack Kirby creates such an iconic image. It is a cover that has been homaged to death. There's literally hundreds upon hundreds of copies to this cover floating out there in comic book land. It's a monster comic cover. It's not a superhero comic cover. Superheroes had fallen out of favor a little bit after World War II, 50s era. Superhero comics are very comedic, and Marvel had been doing great with monsters. Jack Kirby had made so many great monsters up to this point, so he's throwing all he's got into that central image of the Mole Man's Beast cracking through the surface there. And then we have the Fantastic Four talking to the audience as much as they are talking to themselves. They're not in costume. They're not in spandex. That wouldn't happen until issue three. So these are just individuals who have strange and fantastic powers, and they're being called into action to fight this beast. Uh, and then I, I do also really like the cityscape off to the side with everyone uh, the, the normal citizens, the non-superpowered citizens looking terrified, including that cop all the way in the back corner there. What cop? I, I don't see a cop. Uh, over in the far back of, by the building, by the gray building, like by the Human Torch's flame. That's, that's weird because mine doesn't have a cop. Oh, oh, that's crazy. So listeners, uh, huh. I'm reading from the Marvel Unlimited app. So I've got the cover up on my iPad and Lisa's reading from the Barnes and Noble Marvel Masterworks edition. I think these are like early 2000s. It came out 2003, but on Lisa's cover, the cop is not there. The cop has been erased. Do you think it's because he's holding a gun? I mean, he's he has his hand on his gun. I have no idea why the cop would be erased. If like the cop was erased on an addition today, that sort of makes more sense given everything that's gone down in the last couple of years. But for a 2003 edition not to have a cop, oh man, I want to know more. It's uh, not on the inside either. Like Oh, so they really went out of their way to erase that little figure. Huh, listeners, uh, let's get to work. Let's do some investigation. Let's find out why that cop was erased on the 2002 edition of the Barnes and Noble Fantastic Four trade paperback. Fascinating. I yeah, bet you we bizarre. could reach out to the um, the uh, uh, edition editor, the the graphic novel, the collect the collection editor. Oh, maybe. What What I like about this cover is that they are clearly on the defense. Like yes. Uh, Mr. Fantastic is tied up. Yeah, who tied up Mr. Fantastic on that cover? Did the Mole Man tie him up? That monster's fingers can't tie knots. There's no way. <laughs> Maybe he just got tangled. <laughs> like he, he was like he was like running in and all stretched out, and he he got somebody's clothesline or something. Yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting. And the thing is smashing a car. Whose car is that? Oh, you know, <laughs> that's rude. That's very rude. Yeah, well, as you see in this comic, the thing when he gets into a rage, he's not really thinking about others or the property around him. Total disregard. But it is an exciting image. And while they may be on the defensive on the cover, the Human Torch is promising that they are going to bring the fight to this creature. And you do want to turn the page immediately. And when you do that, when you go into the first issue and we get the Fantastic Four and we learn everyone's names, 
They, here they are, Dr. Reed Richards, Ben Grimm, Susan Storm, Johnny Storm. There is this tremendous sense of mystery and you can feel the creators wanting to grab hold of the reader and say like, look at how crazy this is. Look at how exciting this is. And it's successful. Well, they're definitely trying to sell us on these names. They put their um, both their superhero names on the cover. You turn on the inside cover, they have this con convenient thumbnail of like, hey, who, here's everybody's faces, here's everybody's names. When you set this comic hmm. back down, we want you talking about these people. And I think it's kind of interesting because this is also what they're trying to do in the comic. Like, as a team, they want to have this big, like, coming out party yeah. of like, hey world, we're the Fantastic Four, we want you to know, so when I fire our signal flare gun, it's going to say our entire name across the sky, the Fantastic Four. Yeah, I really love that. And you're so right, they are using their celebrity and as the comic gets taken up by other writers uh, in the future and they revisit this moment, it is, Reed going like, I need the world to love us from the jump. If they fear us in any way, if they think we're weirdos or freaks, they will turn against us. We will be the X-Men. That's how um, Mark Wade explains this moment in his run, which I'm also currently reading. And we may talk about in this show. So Reed is clearly aware in this moment of how the world sees them or how the world could potentially see them. And this scene right now, what it is is Reed firing this flare gun into the sky, calling the team together so that they may gather and go out on their first mission as the Fantastic Four. But all of the onlookers below have no idea what the Fantastic Four means. And according to this cop, the crowds are getting panicky. So uh, I don't know if, and we find out later, Reed's timing leaves something to be desired because it's not like the Mole Man's monster is going to be bursting through the asphalt right this second and then the panicked crowds can see them defeat this monster. What he wants to do is show the other team members some photographs about a situation across the world he's a little concerned about. So I, I do think that it's a little funny that he's like, okay, I need to find the perfect moment to fire this flare gun I invented and he completely blows it in my opinion. He's jumping the gun baby. I do think it's important to note that when you're reading comics, especially from this era, that half the time the comic is speaking directly to the reader rather than the narrative. And I think this is a case of like, we need to introduce these people and their wild powers and get them excited. Uh, but yeah, it, maybe the flare gun was a little too much uh, at the start. I don't know. Well, the other team members, when they finally all come together to find out, okay, what's our first mission? Like Johnny's reaction to Reed going like, take a look at these images. He's like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Johnny's right, Johnny's right. Like, come on, man. So then we turn the page and we get to see uh, Sue, Johnny, and Ben's reaction to seeing that signal for the very first time. And I think it says a lot about each of their individual characters, how they react. When Sue sees the signal, she's um, having tea with a society friend. Yeah, I don't know. She's got friends. <laughs> I, 
society friends, though. I'm like, is that different than like a normal friend? Yeah, it's a fancy friend. And when she sees it, she's like, I hope this is the last time I ever see this signal. She's not excited to kick off this new chapter in her life as a member of the Fantastic Four. She pieces out. She turns invisible and slinks away. She thinks to herself, I must be true to my vow, which I think speaks to what I suspect her tendency is. I think she's like myself, an obliger, Mm. where these other three guys now expect her to be one of the Fantastic Four due to a vow she made after just being traumatized, but uh, she doesn't want to let them down. But I think she also doesn't want to let her friend down because she's had her over for tea. She's expecting to have this society friend hang. And so Sue just completely goes invisible while her friend has her back turned and slinks away. She's choosing not to have that confrontation or that conversation. What I think is interesting is that she remains invisible, exits the building, terrifies a bunch of people milling about outside. They all think she's a ghost. She hails a cab. And has she forgotten that she's invisible at this moment? Or is she just enjoying the fact that I'm invisible and this guy's going to think I'm a ghost? She seems to be under the impression that she doesn't know if she's invisible or not, really. She doesn't really trust it. So when she tries to pay the cab driver and he's receiving this, like, floating bill, she's like, oh, man, I really am very invisible. Yeah, she's also impressed that, like, oh, okay, this is... This is legit. This, this is, is for legit reals. power. The next character is Ben, and he's trying to find clothes that will fit him and having a horrible time of it. He's completely hidden himself in this large overcoat and hat. But when he sees the flare, he is relieved. He's like, I, I, I don't have to hide anymore. I can get out of here. And he does that immediately. Uh, bashes right through the wall. And blames the wall. He's like, why do they make doors so narrow? I do not understand. The cops see him and the cops start shooting at him. Of course. And he busts through the street and into the sewer, uh, finds his own passageway, and then pops back up, destroying another piece of property, another street. And... Then gets hit by a car and then blames the car. Like, didn't you see me pop out of the street? So Ben's introduction is all rage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we get to learn why he's so angry. But like that is his defining feature. Then we have Johnny who's at the mechanics. He's a car enthusiast, we find out. And when the flare is pointed out to him, he's super excited to flame up in front of this mechanic and then bolts through the hood of his own car. destroys it. So I think Johnny is really excited to be impressing people. Yeah, and when he's attacked, he's not attacked by cops, he's attacked by the Air Force. Fighter jets come after him and he melts all of them. He's having a ball. He's having a ball. He's also kind of surprised and concerned that they're attacking him. He's like, they don't know that I'm a a hero yet. Yeah, this is why you need a publicist, Reed. You're not doing your job properly. I think there's a lot of 
elements that Reed and, and the others in the Fantastic Four have not considered. Like, I guess they decided to not have secret identities. They Like, Johnny is fully flaming up in front of his buddies, so... I think this goes back to the space race and how astronauts were celebrities, were these icons themselves and heroes to be worshipped. I think Stan Lee is establishing the Fantastic Four as heroes, as celebrities, but and and we get there by the end of this issue. Uh, but again, like I think you just needed to dial up a publicist and have a proper coming out party rather than this sloppy introduction. But I think that also speaks to Reed's inability to understand how people may perceive him, or at least he knows that he has to do some kind of work to make sure that they're not seen as freaks. But the manner in which he does this is all wrong. Like he knows, but he doesn't know. He has an expectation for people to think the way that he thinks. Yeah. Like it, like, yeah, they'll see us as freaks now, but once they see all the good we're doing, they're going to see, oh no, they are, are in fact heroes. And what I enjoy about this first issue is how much of an anthology comic it is. So like part one is the the heroes coming together. Then part two, which is where we're entering now, is now that they've all gathered in this one little office building, they are going to tell the origin of the Fantastic Four. It's a flashback sequence. And then after the flashback sequence, we'll have the actual adventure, the Mole Man battle. In a lot of ways, it feels like a Tales from the Crypt comic book. They definitely don't have their format figured out in the very first issue because it takes a little while to go like, are these parts? Are these chapters? Are we doing chapter headings for each part? Um, so in this first issue, they don't have like parts or chapter headings. But as we go through the, the upcoming issues, they eventually just end up calling yeah. them chapters and then they're chapters. So the first panel of the flashback is... Ben Grimm, as a person, he's not thinged out yet, shouting at Reed, going like, I'm not going to pilot this ship if you're planning to take it out without doing sufficient research mm. into the cosmic rays. Mm -hmm. Ben Grimm has the most ostentatious, obvious uh, for tendencies tendency, and he is a big time questioner. So one of the things with questioners is they never believe that anybody has done the amount of research mm. that they have done, or nobody has thought about things the way they have thought about them. So whenever another person makes a decision, a questioner will go like, well, why are you saying that? Yeah, but in hindsight, the questioner is right. 100% correct. <laughs> Reed, uh, for as smart as he is, doesn't see all the possible uh options that could occur and he miscalculates and yes they are buffeted by cosmic rays and reed's lack of research is what turns them into the fantastic four in this case ben Grimm is correct but like even a clock is correct twice a day like literally <laughs> okay. every everything ben Grimm says is either a question or a question is implied by what he is saying. Yeah, and all, all those questions are attacks. Yes. <laughs> he's an attacker. He, he's a questioner and an attacker. I also think that Ben is an Enneagram 8. Mm. And we don't have time to go into the Enneagrams, but 
it's pretty obvious. Yes, yes, yes. Enneagrams. We talked about them with Silver Surfer and Don Greenwood, some of my favorite episodes. Now, getting back to Reed, not only did he not do the proper research in, about cosmic rays and all that stuff, but he has convinced the team, his friends, to steal the rocket. Uh, he's afraid that the commies are going to beat them to space. Uh, and they do, <laughs> but he, he, he's afraid that they're going to beat them to space. So we're going to damn the red tape and we are going to steal this rocket and go up there on our own. We don't need the government's permission. We need no one's permission. I'm the smartest man in the room. This is on me. He also built the rocket. Yes. So I feel like he has a sense of ownership yeah. over the rocket. And he also has made a goal for himself. His goal is at the first opportunity that the weather is clear enough and my rocket is finished, I'm shooting up that rocket. That I am upholding that goal. Uh, yeah, I hear you. Now, uh, he knew that Ben was coming because Ben pilot. is the pilot. Yep. He does go like, Sue, why why are you coming? And she goes like, well, you're my fiance and I need to do this for you. Uh, so don't question me. And then Johnny's like, well, I'm just going because my sister is going. So they don't really establish why the storms are on the team in are the first issue. Are they even astronauts? I mean, I don't think you can answer that based on the first issue. They do eventually retcon that and explain the, the dynamics of this uh, military unit or corporate unit. But based on the first issue, it does feel like the storms are just coming along. Yeah. But most importantly, in that scene, they establish that Sue and Reed are a couple and they're actually engaged to get married. And as far as Sue's concerned, wherever Reed goes, she goes. And wherever Sue goes, her teenage brother goes. Because Sue can't take care of Reed if she's not there. Mm. And Johnny can't take care of Sue mm. if he's not there. The flashback, of course, ends with everybody being back on Earth going like, oh, no, we've got these weird, wild powers. And Ben Grimm gets the best see I told you so of his entire life, which he's going to milk for the the next uh, infinite number of years. 60 years. <laughs> next 60 years. The, the This flashback sequence, the transformation sequence is the highlight of the book. It's the finest moment from Jack Kirby. Like, I love the Mole Man. I love the Mole Man's monster at the end. But the transformation, one... The way that they illustrate the uh, cosmic rays going through the shuttle and how it starts to affect Johnny first and then the thing. But then when Sue stumbles out and she turns invisible, the expressions of all the characters are so well done. They are terrified. They are horrified. And then Ben's transformation into the thing is really upsetting. Mm. That first close-up panel of Ben's human face, like clay-like and molding into what is eventually the first stage of the thing. The thing has many stages. Jack Kirby is still trying to figure out what he wants his thing to look like. But this first thing is, is like Cronenbergian. This is body horror. It is the highlight of the book. I love it. And also... The Mr. Fantastic Reed Richards' powers as like a plastic man type character, a rubber man, is really gross. <laughs> like I find it super creepy and icky, especially in these first six issues. That very night, though, they make a vow to each other. We're the most powerful people on Earth. We need to use our powers for good. 
and we see their four hands come together. They come up with their uh, code names, I guess, on the spot. Mm -hmm. And I love how nobody questions Mr. Fantastic. Yeah. Like oh, <laughs> Lisa, I, on our next episode, I don't want to jump ahead in our podcast series, but the naming of Mr. Fantastic is going to come back and why he chose Mr. Fantastic. And it's really, really cute. Okay. Oh, I love that. So that's like a, that's a, let's put a pin in it for next week's episode. Great. But they all come up with their code names. They make this vow and from this point on, they're the Fantastic Four. I do think this goes back to the era, the space race, right? Like, even though Reed has uh, failed his team and they are now uh, mutants of a kind, uh, they have to take these powers, the this responsibility that they have, and they have to do something positive with it. That You know, they are serving their country going up to space. And now that that has sort of backfired in their faces, they can't shrug that off. They still have to serve their country, their, their fellow citizens. And the way that they are going to do that is to be on the lookout for disasters or potential disasters that match their abilities. So they've gathered together and Mr. Fantastic has some photographs. There's sinkholes that are occurring underneath nuclear power plants. So they've got to investigate this. And who does it turn out to be? It turns out to be the Mole Man and his monstrous parade of creatures. And the first issue concludes with this glorious monster comic, this monster action stuff. The comic climaxes with the Fantastic Four on Monster Isle escaping out of this mountain. And Reed has his arms wrapped around and he's trying to carry the Mole Man out, presumably onto the plane so they can bring him to the proper authorities, I guess. And the thing, being a questioner, always questioning, is like, can't you even hold on to like one tiny guy? And they eventually get onto the jet, the mountain explodes behind them, and then somebody thinks to say like, hey, what happened to the mole man? And Reed is like, oh, I decided to just leave him behind. I didn't think to consult anybody on it. I just left him. He's never going to bother anyone again. I mean, that's what Reed does. Reed knows best. Reed just makes decisions. He doesn't feel like answerable to anybody. So in the second issue, which is the Skrulls issue, where these aliens have come to Earth and they have taken over the forms of the Fantastic Four and have them doing all kinds of illegal activities, there's not a ton of Sue and Reed content here. It's mostly focused on the anger, the self-loathing, the self-hatred that Ben Grimm is feeling as the thing. And it's causing him to have these violent tantrums where he has to be restrained. Yeah, and Johnny and him are butting heads uh, and bodies and fists and fire and rock and all that stuff. Well, I suspect that Johnny is an obliger and obligers like to see everyone getting along. Mm. So when he sees Ben Grimm acting out, he he doesn't really relate to it. He wants, he, he goes like, why can't you just go along and get along just like everybody else? Yeah, but it's, it's, it's not fair because Johnny's abilities, mm -hmm. he, he has the privilege of changing. Right. He can be the human torch or he can be Johnny Storm. And Ben doesn't. In fact, Ben is 
in the early stages of this comic book being constantly teased by fate saying like, oh, look, your powers are fading away. You're being back a human for three panels. Ah, ha, ha, too bad. You're back to being the rock monster. But the rock monster is acting violently in a confined space with the people that he loves mm. and the people that love him. Right. So at one point, Sue with Johnny as backup go to Reed and say like, we need to do something about Ben. And Reed says like, the decision is, we're just going to be patient with him because it's my fault that he's like this after all. Yeah, and so it is nice to see Reed acknowledge some culpability here. Yeah, and, and he's acknowledged the culpability at, at several instances, but he really hasn't apologized because if you can't tell what I'm hinting at, I think <laughs> that Reed is an upholder. And so to him, his intention was very important. Like my intention was yeah. not for you to have these powers. So I, I don't really have to apologize yeah. exactly. Yeah. But uh, as we know, intent doesn't matter, guys. That's right. Later, Johnny has a plan for catching the scrolls by pretending to be one of them and like acting out as like bad Johnny. And Ben goes like, why do you get to be the person who traps mm -hmm. the scrolls? Why can't I be the person who traps the scrolls? I'm the one who's being the most affected by it because I am the most monstrous of us all. And Reed goes like, I don't understand why we have to be fighting and arguing at the same time. Like, we're going to destroy ourselves with all of this inner tension. And Ben Grimm gives what I consider a cry for help. And he yeah. says like, sometimes I think it would be better off if I was destroyed. It would be better off for the world and it would be better off for me. This scene is so brutal because no one answers him. Yeah, it's a very 50s <laughs> reaction. Like, ooh, that seems uh, like a really hard emotion. I'm just gonna turn the other way. Yeah, and like reading that scene, I, like, I, I felt hit and then you're hit again because no one picks it up. It's it's hard. It's a hard scene to read, actually. I really relate to that um, when I was first dealing with my depression when I was in high school. I would say, like, these overly yeah. dramatic things. And people's response to someone having this saying a dramatic thing is like, oh, you don't mean that. Do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah. On to the next thing, which is what they do, which is fighting these scrolls. And Johnny's plan works. Uh, they do get the upper hand on the scrolls, and they capture the scrolls. And the scrolls immediately go and like, we hate being scrolls. We'll do anything. Please don't kill us. And Reed Reed's solution to the scroll problem in issue two is so utterly horrific. He, he says like, look, I'm going to tell you, you can live on this planet but I'm gonna tell you what you're going to change into and I'm going to hypnotize you so you never change out of it. And he he forces them to turn into cows and he damns them to a life of being cows. Before he does that, he elicits a promise out of them, a swear. And they swear <laughs> that they will never harm humanity ever again. And Reed, if you notice, is always soliciting vows, 
promises and swears mm, out of people. Yeah. And it's part of his upholder nature because when he sets an expectation for others through a promise or an expectation for himself, he meets that expectation. So he feels like, well, if the expectation is in place, of course the other person will fulfill it because I would fulfill it. Man, man. Okay. Well, I'm team secret invasion. <laughs> On to the next issue. Issue three is a huge leap forward into what the Fantastic Four will eventually become. They now have costumes. They now have the Fantastic Car. Johnny Storm's Human Torch is no longer drawn in that flamey way. He's drawn in the, the way we know the Human Torch to be drawn today. Um, and, and yeah, so costumes, costumes. We got to talk costumes. Sue makes them some tights. Sue makes them tights as a surprise. So she pops out one day and she's modeling the costume design like, look at me. And Reed is like, that's nice. You made yourself a costume. And she's like, I made everyone costumes. And of course, Ben Grimm, the questioner is like, bah, costumes, why, why would we need costumes? Costumes are for kids. And Sue's feelings are hurt. And she's like, we should look like a team. And Reed Richards, like trying to boost her self-esteem, goes like, you should work for Dior. These look amazing. And Sue says the most typical obliger thing where she says, I've got enough to do acting as nursemaid to you three. So she's saying, I don't have time for my own dreams and expectations for myself because I'm so busy taking care of you guys. And then she says, like, here thing, this even makes you glamorous. And what makes him glamorous is she puts a helmet over his head. <laughs> like, I understand why she does that, because she has been seeing the thing, like, hating his body and his appearance. And so she's like, well, I think putting this bag over you will be do wonders for your self-esteem. Uh, no, Sue. No. Well, he shows her because the first opportunity he has to fight a monster in this suit, he rips it to shreds. Yeah, it's a great panel because he looks like he's really relishing destroying her work. And I'm on his side on this. Yeah. It's easy to see why the thing was such a breakout character. You like of all the, the team members, he's the one you relate to the most. Like you really understand and feel his agony in these early issues. And it's underscored even further when we learn that Ben is holding a candle for Sue. He likes Sue. So when she puts this bucket on his head, it's this very deep rejection. And it's a rejection that just continues to drill into his soul and his self-hatred. We learn this following one of his episodes where he briefly turns back into his human form only to turn right back into the thing, which I, I, I'm sure just re-traumatizes him. But when he says, like, I want... I want Sue to look at me the way she looks at you, Reed. Mm. Nobody seems shocked. Yeah. I think that it is an open secret that Ben is carrying a torch for Sue. Yeah. And Johnny tries to just like laugh it off. Like yeah. she wouldn't be into you if you looked like Rock Hudson. Yeah. But like the idea that they keep him around despite the fact that he is tormenting himself in Sue's presence. Like, it's just heartbreaking. I want to take this moment just to highlight something that affected me on this read that I never really appreciated in the past, 
The coloring in these comics is so fantastic, pun intended. The way that panel is lit, where the thing is magenta, he's red, he's he's hurt, he's in, he's in pain. Like the color sells the emotion. And so often throughout these first six issues, the color is doing a lot of storytelling. And I don't think the coloring, especially of this era, gets the credit that it deserves. So I just want to take a moment, say Stan Goldberg, you kicked butt this issue. So Ben Grimm is mad. He is magenta mad. And it causes a lot of strife. And and this issue ends with uh, Johnny has saved the day. And instead of Ben celebrating that the Miracle Man has been conquered, he goes like, why is Johnny getting all of the credit? And Johnny just flips out. And to me, I think this is a great example of Obliger Rebellion. So like Johnny wants to feel love and admiration. He wants to be recognized for his powers and his skills, um, but he really is doing it for the team. He's an obliger. He's helping everyone out. He feels like he's doing his part by somebody has to get control of Ben. I guess it's on me. And so when Ben does this, says like, I should have partial credit for what Johnny has done. Johnny goes like, I can't take it anymore. I quit. I, you know, you guys want me to be part of the team too bad. And he quits the Fantastic Four. So now we're in issue four and Johnny is in full on obliger rebellion. So what's the next thing that he does? He finds someone else to oblige <laughs> and he finds this bum with mysterious powers in a hostel. And it turns out to be Namor the Submariner. Yeah, it does. Love Namor. And this is a great reintroduction of this character from the classic era of timely comics. For those that don't know, Namor first appeared in Marvel Comics number one in October of 1939 alongside the Human Torch, not Johnny Storm, but the original, the android. And uh, the, together they fought Nazis alongside Captain America. And it was rah, rah, rah until superhero comics fell out of favor and he sort of disappeared into obscurity until he was rescued by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee in this comic book. Though in this issue, he's acting more villainous than not. Yeah. Granted, he has a right to yeah. be upset because when Johnny drops him in the ocean, his memory is restored. He's like, duh, I'm Namor the Submariner. He swims to his kingdom and it's been destroyed by atomic testing. Yeah. So he pops right back out and points at Johnny and goes like, you've signed the death warrant for humanity. And Johnny's like, hey, I was just trying to help. So, you know, Namor is an antagonist, but I think he is a justified antagonist. And I think he's one of the most interesting characters in comic books because of his point of view and because of his anger. This issue ends with actually the thing getting to save the day. Yeah, great Nam scene. Namor sends this enormous sea monster to attack humanity and the thing straps a nuclear weapon, the very thing that destroyed Namor's home <laughs> and jumps into the monster, destroying the monster. And we have a resolution of sorts between him and Johnny, because Johnny goes like, I hate to say it, 
but you saved the day today. I'm really proud of you. And the thing is, of course, like, big deal. That'll buy me a cup of coffee or some weird 50 saying that makes no sense. And then Namor is like, well, I'm not done with you guys yet. And then Sue... Uh, steals his horn in her invisible form, but when he when she returns to visibility, he sees her and is like, "Damn, girl! <laughs> um, if you become my bride, I will totally stop trying to get my vengeance." That's yeah. Sue sort of feigns like being aghast, but you can also tell she she likes it. She, she totally likes it. is into it, and she says she will. You know, like if it's going to spare humanity, maybe I will marry this Atlantean. But. I think that is also partially her obliger side. She goes like, oh, I guess I'll sacrifice my hopes and dreams right. of marrying Reed Richards be- by marrying this guy who is equally, if not more hot. He's for way this- more hot. <laughs> for the He's sake of humanity. Way more hot. But that word sacrifice really is a burr to Namor. And he's like, sacrifice? I would be a sacrifice Dude, to hell with you. I'm a piece. Yeah, he is I'm a, a piece. I'm a king. I can sell a Speedo. Yeah. You'd be a princess. Yeah. And so he bolts out of there. He says, I don't need you then. Get out of here. The next issue is the introduction of Dr. Doom. Bum, bum, bum. And we know he's evil because he is playing chess. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The number one indicator of being an evil genius. We see you, Zemo. A super villain. And we get a little bit of Victor Von Doom's background. He went to school with Reed Richards. And I'm a little disappointed that in the Fantastic Four, we don't get an example of each of the four tendencies because we've got an upholder, a questioner, and two obligers, which makes sense because obligers, like myself, make up 41% of the population. Yeah, but what is Doom, Lisa? I think Doom is our best example of a rebel tendency, it's not perfect because we don't really, he does meet his own expectations, but I think that has a lot to do with rebels meet expectations if they make those expectations part of their identity. Mm-hmm. So I think part of his identity as a supervillain is to meet those villainous expectations. But we see at school, he's supposedly supposed to be studying rocket science or whatever, but um, he goes into studying what is forbidden, the which dark is arts. sorcery and black magic. He has a plan to wrangle the Fantastic Four into a scheme, but first he needs some leverage. So what does he do? He's like, Sue, I need <laughs> Sue Storm. And Sue is, of course, like, well, you know, if he needs me <laughs> over there to not hurt you guys, of course I will oblige. And Reed is like, well, I'm an upholder. I'm going to make you a promise. I promise I'm not going to let him hurt you. And because I've said it, so it shall come to pass. Hmm. So there's not like a lot of uh, content revolving around Sue and Reed in this issue, but it is without a doubt my favorite issue of the six. It's wild. Dr. Doom gets Johnny, Ben, and Reed to time travel to the pirate era, because Doom wants Blackbeard's jewels, which apparently are Merlin's jewels. And in the process, 
like it's a monkeys episode, like the TV show. Oh, the totally, monkeys. totally. It, it, you know, it's all hijinks, and Ben becomes Blackbeard. Or was he Blackbeard all along? I think he was Blackbeard all along. How fun is that? It's so fun, and uh, like they're going to bring the jewels back, and they decide, no, we can't bring the jewels back. Let's bring back some rusty chains and really pull a prank on Doom, and it gets Doom so mad. But it still fulfills Reed's upholder tendency because he's like, I didn't technically say that I would bring back the treasure. <laughs> I said that I would bring back the treasure chest Ooh. and I'm a man of my word and the chest is full of, it's here. It's just full of chains. Yeah, so your anger is your fault. So in the beginning of the next issue, Submariner is still at large and Dr. Doom is still at large and the Fantastic Four are sitting in their cushy apartment in the Baxter building and Sue is anxious about it. She's like, I don't know how we're supposed to feel safe. Like, I don't feel safe with those guys still out there. And Johnny tries to help. Johnny is like, hey, you know, whatever comes up, we're the Fantastic Four. We're going to be able to handle it. And Reed is like, I'm an upholder, so I'm going to fall back on my routine. So in the meantime, let's get through our pile of mail. We have other <laughs> things that we need to do. And so he finds a letter uh, like a make-a-wish situation, and he goes and he checks that off of his checklist of things to do, and it helps him a lot. So we're starting to see how they are affecting the outside world and how the outside world is starting to affect them. That conversation that Kirby and Lee are having regarding the struggle between their superhero lives and their Baxter building science lives is in full effect now in issue five. This is issue six. Yeah, six. So I love this team up between Namor and Dr. Doom. Doom goes and visits Namor's like Atlantean pad. And while he's down there, one, he's like, hey, uh, I thought uh, you were going to destroy humanity and you're on holiday. What's up? And he's like, hey, man, like, don't get on my case. Like my rage can reawaken at any moment. And then Doom is like, he's taking a tour around Namor's pad and he sees this eight by 10 on his desk. And that eight by 10 is of Sue Storm. And Doom's like, what's this, pray tell? And Namor's like, Look, that lady is no concern of yours. Doom's metal expression with his like glove up on his chin is so funny because clearly Doom's like, oh man, this guy's a chump. I love it. Uh, and then Namor, you know, he was so mad in their last confrontation with the Fantastic Four. And he's like, he was mad specifically at Sue for rejecting him. But clearly that rejection ignited a little flame. Also though, like, where did this photograph come from? We find out later that Sue has been stashing an eight by 10 glassy uh -huh. of Namor. So apparently at some point they had a little photo exchange. That's like, what I think. Like they're pen pals or yeah, something. Yeah, I think they're pen pals. I think they've been secretly communicating. Dr. Doom though continues to manipulate him going like, you have to take your revenge on humanity no matter how you feel about Sue Storm. And Namor's like, Fine, fine. As long as we don't hurt Sue, I agree to team up with you. Now, Namor has an expectation about Dr. Doom's intentions, which Dr. Doom delights in later defying. So Namor has his photo of Sue proudly displayed in his pad, but Sue has 
her photo of Namor secreted behind her bookcase, and it's uncovered accidentally by her brother Johnny. Mortifying. Your little bro finding your spank bank or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Johnny rats her out immediately to her fiancé and is like, and because Reed comes in like, what are you guys fighting about? And Johnny's like, this photo I just set on fire that Sue has been stashing of Namor, and of course, Reed is like, you owe us an explanation. And luckily, uh, saved by the Namor who walks in and is like, hey, what's up? It's me, Namor. And Ben Grimm is like, what are you doing here? And starts going in attack mode. Um, And Reed has to restrain him. And Sue is like, he wouldn't just walk in the door if he intends on attacking us. But Johnny's like, yeah, but I don't trust him either. So I'm going to surround him in flames. And so we have this image of Sue protecting Namor as her brother creates this ring of fire around him. And Namor is pretending to get chummy with the Fantastic Four, knowing that he has implanted this magnet in the Baxter building. But what he doesn't realize is when Doom ignites the magnet and pulls the Baxter building off its foundation and into space, that Doom has turned against Namor. And now Namor's like, you double-crossing dog, how dare you? And now I actually have to team up with the Fantastic Four to fight you. And Namor saves the day. He's the one who, he he jumps into the swimming pool or the water tank that's in the Baxter building, gets a little jazz, gets a little extra energy from that water, propels himself out into space, lands on Doom's rocket, crashes Doom's rocket, destroys it. Doom survives by skating away on an asteroid. That's a really powerful costume he's wearing. And uh, Namor and the Fantastic Four are kind of like, uh, they part ways on a good footing, good standing. I think it's just kind of like a truce for now Mm -hmm. because Sue still is saying like, you know, some Mariner doesn't seem that bad to me, you guys. (laughs) And of course they're like, I don't know, Sue. Yeah, again, just like how they avoided confronting the thing's cries for help, they just let Sue's infatuation with Namor slide. Reed's not ready to have that conversation. No. And she's already his fiance. Right. He's an upholder. Yeah. He expects her to follow through on that. And she's an obliger. Yeah. So like, there's no way she's going to disappoint him by not marrying him. So I think we've done it. I think we fulfilled our mission of finding the four tendencies for the Fantastic Four and for Sue and Reed in particular. Yeah, I'm super proud of us. What I'm curious about is if they will stay in those boxes, in those categories, in those tendencies, as we progress through this podcast series and observing the Fantastic Four as written by different creators. Because if you go back and listen to our very first couple, Scott and Jean of the Uncanny X-Men, when we used the five love languages, we determined what their love languages were in that first episode on the Dark Phoenix Saga. And it stayed that way through all four episodes, all four stories that we covered. I'm less certain that's the case with the Fantastic Four because these characters grow so much over the course of their 60 years. Now, I think some of them are locked solid 
in these first six issues, their personalities, but a few others, less so. And I'm talking about Sue and Reed in particular. With Scott and Jean, I think that might partially be confirmation bias. Mm. Like we had made a decision in that first issue. And so we brought that perspective to the following episodes. I also don't think we were wrong, <laughs> but um, like with Reed and Sue, I do think like you've read more Fantastic Four than I have, but Reed, like he is such a high achiever. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. he's an inventor. Um, he sets expectations for himself. Like to me, I think it's like hard. I, it would be hard for him to get to the place where he is without being really structured hmm. and really um, and follow through on expectations. Yeah, I mean, I, one there, there's a couple. Well, okay, hold on. There's a there's a few things uh, that I think we need to address. Uh, one, I would love to hear from our listeners. Do they agree with us as far as the tendencies are concerned regarding each individual? And and two, I, I I also wonder about confirmation bias. The moment we give them tendencies in this episode, are we now forcing those observations on future storylines? Yeah, like I'm looking to support my theory. Right. I'm not like this isn't like a double blind study or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. Um, with Sue, like a lot of superhero wives and sidekicks and whatever tend to be obligers because yeah. they're not like the team leader. Yeah. I would love to see Sue bust out of the obligers, but there's nothing wrong with obligers. I myself and I'm obliger. Right. And but like the, the, you know, the, the, the invisible girl character, Sue Storm is so dismissed throughout. She's barely a, a character. But not only in these six issues, like just through the first run of these 102 issues from Kirby and Lee and beyond, I think it takes a long time for Sue Storm, Sue Richards, to become a truly interesting and separate character. I think we're ready to like leave this here. I, I'm ready to close our yeah. session with Reed and Sue. And now I wanna know, Brad, how has it been thinking about the four tendencies and like thinking about yourself as a rebel, has it helped you at all? And then is there anything from reading this comic that you've learned about yourself and about our marriage? Well, we talked about this a week ago in our Patreon episode on the four tendencies. Um, and I, I do think, uh, I have been thinking about myself as a rebel and how I don't want to be a rebel. And throughout this week, I've had moments where I'm going like, ooh, that's a rebel moment. And do like, sh do I need to reject the premise of this moment I'm living or can I, can I, can I branch out into being an obliger uh, for this sequence? I think that's one of the great things about this kind of personality profile type things like the four tendencies or the Enneagram where you just become more aware of what is what are you doing because it's the right thing to do and what are you doing just because it's kind of your nature yeah, like i do think that rebel fits me well and uh, but i also think like i i don't necessarily want to be a rebel i don't want to be constantly going like you know no thank you <laughs> i reject this i like it it's it's a there's like um a negative connotation to being a rebel a little bit and i want to shed that that's hilarious though because i'm an obliger yeah. and i go like 
I do have my own goals, hopes, and dreams, and I would love to be a rebel who goes like, well, I'm just going to be me. So maybe the truth is, you know, we should remove value judgments from our tendencies. Just like Gretchen says. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's hard. That's really, really hard. So I'm working on that. I do think that the tendencies are a great tool to understand and examine these characters and probably taking them to other characters. Like I would love to revisit X-Men with the four tendencies, right? Like I think you could do a whole podcast using just the four tendencies to explore character narrative, that stuff, right? It's fun to like, when you watch them interacting and we see each of them kind of lean into yeah. their own tendency and not recognize the expectations, hopes and dreams of others yeah. because they're just so like, bearing down into, well, this is what I do and this is why I do it. And so it's been fun talking about it on this episode when you're like, oh, and here's a moment where Ben is being a big time questioner. And it is like this light bulb that comes up and you're like, oh, Lisa's so right. This is a questioner (laughs) moment. Ben is totally a questioner. Uh, and, And so like, I think using the tendencies has helped me really enjoy Ben as a character even more. He was the guy I was coming into probably liking the most already, Mm -hmm. although I'm a big Reed Richards fan uh, because I like all his flaws. Uh, But using the questioner tendency and thinking about Ben with the questioner tendency just... It it gave me new perspective on his point of view, and I love that. And I really want his family to take care of him. And I wish that the medium of this day would allow for when these flare-ups happen, when these, like, oh, warning signs occur, they aren't just immediately dismissed through action. Like, I wish they could have stopped and talked to Ben a little bit longer. I wish they could have talked to Sue about that photograph a little bit more. Uh, but I I don't think the medium was ready to deal as deeply with those like, whoa, moments. I think also these particular characters in their current state don't have the tools mm. to deal with Ben Grimm's questioning nature. And I feel like if they could continue down their four tendencies journey, Gretchen Rubin provides a lot of strategies for dealing with people with other tendencies that might not necessarily be your tendency, so you don't really relate to them. And we have to remember that they have just gone through a traumatic event Right, recently. Which they're all processing in their own unique way. Yeah, so they've got a long journey ahead of them. I think that's a huge lesson that we can take away from these first issues of the Fantastic Four is to not presume that other people are thinking the same way as you or feeling the same way as you. Even when you have the same mission on paper, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing it for your own reasons, Mm. for their own reasons. Mm. You know, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? I totally get what you're saying. I also really appreciated this read by focusing in on these six issues. And I know there's been a couple times during this conversation where I'm like, well, in the future, this is going to happen and they're going to retcon this and blah, blah, blah. But by just focusing on these six stories and what these six stories present, you have a different version of the Fantastic Four than what I what I know today in 2021. For me now thinking about the four tendencies in terms of myself, like I originally read this book back in like 2017 or mm. 2018 around the time that it came out 
And I really didn't uh, embrace my obliger tendency. And I think part of that is my Enneagram for tendency where I am very individualistic. So I resent being the tendency that is most common. I'm like, no, I couldn't possibly be 41% of the population. I'm a special, unique individual flower. You are. Mr. Rogers was right. <laughs> but um, now as I'm revisiting the four tendencies on this podcast, I'm really thinking about like, I attach a lot of self-esteem mm. around expectations. Mm -hmm. Like if I feel like I fail someone else, I disappoint you or I disappoint my mom, like it always goes back to me and a personal failing. Mm. Like, ugh, I didn't meet this expectation. I'm like a bad person. And when I fail expectations for myself, like I go like, oh, I'm going to practice piano more and I don't fulfill that. It's like, ugh, I mean, you know, like I didn't meet that expectation. I'm a bad person. And like thinking about not just my tendency, the tendency of the obliger who has the habit of making time for others, but not making time for myself, like other people are failing expectations all of the time, no. you know, a questioner is disappointing people all of the time and they don't even think about it. They just go like, you know, like that's your expectation for me. Like, well, that doesn't make sense to my questioning brain. So I'm not going to do it like a rebel who is making and breaking expectations all of the time doesn't weigh their self-esteem by mm. those expectations. That's just they're more about like, what is my identity and am I staying true to what my identity is? Mm. So like, to me, I have to step away from going like, I'm going to, I'm going to weigh my value on, am I meeting expectations? Mm. Like, I just have to let that go. It's hard. It's it is very, hard. very, very, very hard. Well, you know, it's what do we always talk about, uh, especially with Marvel comics and the MCU is that, Failure is not an option. It's a necessity. Mm -hmm. Fail, fail again, fail better. That's part of life. So, you know, removing judgment from failing is a good thing. And failure doesn't necessarily happen every time you don't meet an expectation. Mm. Like priorities change. Like, yeah. hey, I say that, oh, I'm going to spend more time practicing piano. But then I decided like... That time was better spent elsewhere. Making podcasts. That's right. So, like, just because I made an expectation and broke it doesn't mean that I failed. Right. I am so excited about starting this journey with the Fantastic Four. Same. I always find, like, getting the first episode in a new series under my belt as such a tremendous relief. Mm -hmm. And I feel super motivated to move on to our next episode and continue this conversation about the Fantastic Four, Sue and Reed, and the Four Tendencies. Good, good, good. I'm glad you're motivated because next week we're going to try and do a few things, not just one thing. We do have one more Creator Corner conversation that we wanted to be part of last month's series, but it got pushed and 
Man, guys, this is a crazy cool one. Jordan Morris of Jordan Jesse Go will be joining us to discuss his podcast to graphic novel adaptation Bubble from First Second Books. He co-wrote it alongside Sarah Morgan, and it's illustrated by Tony Cliff and colored by Natalie Reese. Uh, any combination of those people will be joining Jordan on the show it's pretty freaking exciting. He's podcast royalty. Yeah, he is. Uh, but we also just started FF and we don't want to let that linger. So we're going to try and get the next session out next week as well. It's time for us to get Sue and Reed married. And to do that, we need to look at both Fantastic Four Annual Number 3, where they finally tie the knot in 1963, as well as the Fantastic Four 40th Anniversary Wedding Special that was published in 2005. I read both of these the other night, and they are an absolute trip, Lisa. I had such a good time with this 40th Anniversary Special, and I'm very excited for you to read it. Because you want me to read it, I'm gonna read it because yeah. I'm an obliger. <laughs> so uh, let's get out of here, Brad. Yeah. Where can our listeners send the words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at Mouthdork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. And we're going to be putting out a lot of Fantastic Four Patreon content this month. We will be covering FF from Fraction and Allred. Now... If you want to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, www.comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, guys, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Watch out for cosmic rays. Take a breath, Brad. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you got through a lot, though.